Thank you, Jeff, and the rest of the musicians for leading today. What a blessing, y'all. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving with family and friends. Are you still experiencing the effects of tryptophan today? I'll be able to tell about 10 minutes in. I'll see whose eyes are still open and whose eyes. You didn't have turkey for breakfast, did you? I don't know. No. We didn't do the turkey thing this year. I don't know. We're not big fans of turkey. So I don't know. But uh, anyway, so I hope you had a great time. Um, you know, we really do have so, so very much to be thankful for. And we say that, and I know that we mean it, but at the same time, we just say it and say it and say it. We sort of become desensitized to the fact of how we've been blessed in so many ways. This time of the year is always very special for me. As I reflect on last year, I just realized how blessedly, how, how richly I have been blessed and uh, how the Lord has just been so active in my life. You know, I also think every year this time of year, it was, I think about, it was 42 years ago today that Teresa and I went out on our first date. How about that? And, and uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, are they applauding me or you, Tree? I don't know. They probably should be going blessings upon you, dear. Uh, 42 years. Three weeks after that, we got engaged. So I don't necessarily recommend that to everybody, but that's just a report on what happened. We went out on a Sunday night after church, and uh, on Tuesday, I bought an engagement ring. <laughs> and three weeks later, we got engaged. So... I don't know if that was insane or what, but you know, it seems to be working out here. I hope she stays with me, I don't know. We'll see how, how it goes. Um, but you know, all these years have gone by, and those of you that are my age, you know just how quickly time goes by. And uh, um, it's amazing when I look back on all these years we've been together, and, and uh, you've been such a blessing to me, and I'm grateful for that, Therese. God bless you. And you know, she's been a blessing to a lot of folks everywhere we've been. As a matter of fact, most of the places where we've been involved in ministry, people love Teresa and just sort of tolerate me. You know, that's kind of the way it works. Um, I'm not gonna say that with Bobby and Cindy, that's the way it works, but you know, you just, you never know. And you church family in the three years that we've been here uh, have been such a blessing. When I was sick a while back, I know that many of you prayed and I'm really so very grateful for that. That's just such a blessing. And uh, the Lord answered and, and uh, I'm better and uh, I'm grateful for that. And many of you were in the same boat. It's great, it's a wonderful thing when we can pray for each other, you know, and, and really lift each other up to the Lord in, in times of need and in times of joy. We've got families in the church now even going through difficult times and we need to be remembering them. And the blessings of this life really are just too numerous to count when you look at what we have and how God has blessed us. Um, but I'm convinced that we need to be more diligent in thinking about the blessings and not just the fact that we're overall blessed, but like individual little things. I've, I've sort of started a habit years ago when I wake up in the morning, I begin my day just thanking the Lord for really 
everything I can think about. Now I have to admit, my mind's not usually very sharp that time of the day, but I'm trying to remember and just think. And sometimes it's little things, you know, just the ability to see and hear and, you know, and walk and, you know, even walking with pain. Cause you know, I get up in the morning and you know, it's like, it takes 20 minutes to stand up straight, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, y'all are laughing, I know, but you just wait, it's coming. So. <laughs> it's coming. Now, I used to say, that's how I know I'm alive, because if I wake up and I'm not in pain, I'm in heaven. <laughs> right, Mark? <laughs> that's right. So that's good, but that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So um, I think that our gratitude is one instrument that God can use to draw others to himself. When people see us and know that we're in the world just like they are and we're experiencing the same anxieties and different things that may be going on, but they see that our lives are full of gratitude toward the Lord for what he's done for us, that draws people to us and then God uses that to draw them to himself. It's a way to be a great witness as we demonstrate thankfulness. I feel bad that I'm more aware of it during this season of the year. It ought to be something that's really on our hearts and minds just all the time and every day. So, and as wonderful as the blessings of this life are, the greatest blessing of all and the thing for which we should be most thankful is our salvation, y'all. And that's what I wanna talk to you today about uh, from Ephesians chapter two. I wanna talk to you about the salvation that God has given us. It's just a simple message, a simple salvation message. And I hope that every one of you in this room are sure, or as Pastor Bobby said the other week, you know that you know that you know that God is yours, that Jesus is your savior. But I, and if you don't know that, then before we leave here today, please, 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 I beg of you, nail it down before you leave. It's so, just so very, very important. And it's not difficult to know. It's not difficult to know. We're gonna talk about, um, some of the impediments to that later in the message. But uh, so many of us are so busy looking at our own lives and evaluating our own performance that we see, we see defects in our performance and it keeps us from the assurance that we need to have. Why? Because we're looking at self and we're not looking at Christ. That's what we gotta do is keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. So Ephesians that we're gonna be looking at here in just a minute, of course, was written by Paul. And unlike some of these other letters, this is one of the prison epistles. Uh, um, it's not like Colossians in particular. It wasn't devised to combat error and expose the inconsistencies of false teaching. In the book of Colossians, Paul was dealing with uh, these heresies that had entered into the church and were trying to destroy it. They were philosophies according to the traditions of the world. You see, we see a lot of that today. So we have to be alert for what the world is trying to invade us with, philosophically speaking. We're not supposed to be like the world. We're supposed to think differently. And that's what Paul saw in the church, the Colossian church, was that these, these uh, philosophies were uh, finding root in the church and destroying the church. So he wrote sort of a, I don't know, a sort of a militaristic letter where he was saying, look, don't be taken captive which in that book, in that, that particular passage in the second chapter of Colossians, he used actual military terms to describe what was going on. It was like a conquering army had come into their city and was taking them captive, which is what would happen back in those days when there was a war. Everybody in the losing side would become the slaves of the winning side. 
So he was giving them a warning they would understand and we should understand it too. It is warfare. But Ephesians is different. Ephesians consists of six chapters. The first three chapters are theological in nature. They're teaching truths. This is how you should think. Theology is consumed with the idea of thinking about God and who he is and how he wants to relate to us and how he wants us to relate to him, these kinds of things. The last three chapters in the book of Ephesians are sort of, and walk this way, according to what I just taught you in the first three chapters. And so our passage today comes from chapter two, which, which deals with more of the theological understanding of salvation. Paul was kind of teaching a unity of mankind in Christ and the purpose of God for the world through the church. That's what we get from these first, uh, these initial chapters. It was not purely inspirational. I mean, he sought to relate his vision to the practical demands of the Christian, of Christian living in a hostile society. So that's why we see these theological chapters and then the practical chapters. So let's stand together and, and, and we'll read these first 10 verses. Um, we'll stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Now I'm gonna read it from New American Standard, which is a little different than what you're used to, but it's on the screen and you'll be able to follow along or in your own scripture. Now you have to remember that these were letters that Paul wrote and there were no chapter divisions. We sort of lose, I think, some of the the meaning of the verses by looking at these individual chapters and thinking, okay, here's a new thing. When actually it's just a continuation of the chapter which preceded it. You can look in verse 18 of um, chapter one, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now chapter two deals with that very same thing. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And then he says in verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead. You see, it just trans, it just smoothly goes from one chapter to the next. And you were dead. It's an interesting phrase there in the Greek. I gotta stop preaching because you're standing. But it literally says there, and you being dead, it's a condition with which you were born. We'll talk about it in a minute. Let me just read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, two of my favorite words in all the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, reference back up there to the first verse, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the truthfulness that it contains that can impact and change our lives forever. Help us, Lord, today to see clearly the message that you have for us. Take away any impediments to that truth being proclaimed. And I pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Now, today I have for you just five quick points. And you say, well, Frank, usually it's two or three, you know, or something. No, these are five and these are quick, but you'll, you'll be pleased with the length and the brevity. So. so the starting point, number one, the first point is the starting point for us all. Dead in our sin. That's verse one. We just read that. And I explained to you, it's a condition of separation brought by our birth our fallenness at the point of our birth. So he said, and you being dead, this is a condition that you were born with and it's demonstrated by our walk. We walk in wickedness, basically. And we see that, you know, you don't have to teach a little baby to do bad things, right? I mean, I, I, I haven't been around a lot of little babies lately. I'm a little elderly now and even my grandchildren are, more grown, but a little baby will let you know and know in certain terms when they need something, and they don't usually go, Mother, I need food. <laughs> it would be nice, wouldn't it? No, it's usually just crying. It's crying and sometimes screaming, you know, and they can't differentiate between the need for a diaper change or food or I'm uncomfortable or I need to go to sleep or I've always, I'm always amazed at mothers because they kind of can read those things, you know. Oh, he's just tired. Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, I don't scream when I'm tired. I just lay down and take a nap, you know. But <laughs> the kid is screaming. Oh, he's just tired. Where do they learn that? <laughs> They're completely self-centered. I even remember my own, you know, maybe some of you've had this, you, you're, you're disciplining your child and your child gets angry, you know, as they get a little older and they go, I hate you. I wish you weren't my mommy or my daddy or whatever, you know. My son said that to me a few times when I was requiring something of him. I said, well, too bad. So sad. I love you and you are my son. So do what I told you to do, you know those kinds of things. I always used to have those conversations. I remember having a conversation with him as he got older and he said, I said, look, Jonathan, God has given me a job description related to you. And my job is to bless you, but you won't let me. All you got to do is follow the plan here, Bubba, and I will bless you. You know, we tried to demonstrate it at times when he was being obedient. He was a good kid, but he had his moments just like you did right? Oh, I forgot. This is a room full of perfect children, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not so much. So we're dead in our sins, and it, it's a condition of separation that was brought on by our birth, you see. And in the verse 2 makes it even a little more grim because we are walking as if controlled by Satan. Look at verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 
Interesting word here in the Greek that's translated disobedience. The word is apatheia. What does that sound like? Sounds like apathy, doesn't it? Oh, I don't care. I'm not worried about that too much. It literally means to be unbelieving, opposing the gracious word or purpose of God. I mean, that's the way we were as children a lot of times. Our parents would say, this will be good for you and you should walk this way. And we didn't necessarily believe them. We, we, we continued to walk according to what we wanted because there was something out there that we were looking at and we desired that and we thought it would be good for us, but our parents knew that it might not be the best thing. So they gave us instruction that was contrary, but we continued to follow it. And so it's disobedience, it's apathy towards what God has called us to do. What has God called us to do? Well, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, we've got a group leaving this week to go to um, the, uh, East Asia. And, you know, it's 20-something hours on an airplane, and, you know, maybe they'll eat things that they can't really identify, you know, and, and uh, it's not going to be the most comfortable thing that they've ever experienced in their lives. You know, but, you know, these folks that are going just feel like this is what God would have them do. I mean, you don't do things like this just for fun. I think it's fun, but, or at least I used to when I was younger, you see. What is it that God's called you to do? Well, Pastor Frank, God hadn't called me to be a pastor or anything. Well, that's fine. But are you a friend or are you a brother or a sister or a wife or a husband or a parent or whatever? These are all callings of God. This is the ministry that God has given to us all in some way, shape, or form, where do you go to work on a daily basis? You're an employee or an employer. The people that you work around, they're your ministry field. God has called you to reach them with his good news. That's why he puts you in that place. Don't shy away from that. So why are we controlled by Satan or things? Well, we're driven by lust. Look at verse three. Among them, we too are formerly live in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Wrath is condemnation. So we're driven by these lusts, and God is, con and we are condemned by God. You see that in verse, the second part of verse three. We are children of wrath. When we're walking apart from Christ, there's condemnation. Until we come to that point in our lives where we submit and surrender our will to him and trust him as our savior, we are walking condemned already. It's not that God is evaluating our walk and saying, well, you were pretty good there, so yeah, that's okay, but you're really bad there, so that's really bad. No, you're already condemned. And you're walking according to what God has spoken relative to his salvation, you see. So we're driven by lust because lust is just my desire for what I want when I want it. Lord, I know that you've got this in front of me, but I don't really want to do that because it'll make me uncomfortable. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. We do that, even as Christians sometimes. And of course, that doesn't cause us to lose our salvation, but it is sinful before the Lord and it, it interrupts our fellowship with him. You know, when Jonathan would be disobedient, it would, he's still my son. I still love him. I'd still protect him and pro provide for him. But it, it interrupted our fellowship. He didn't look forward to me coming home from the office. You see. Or I'd be greeted by his mom at the door with some interesting news. 
Did you ever say, wait till your father gets home? I don't know. Yeah, did you? Okay. I wasn't there for those conversations, but you see, that's, that's what it's all about. So number two, God intervened. And we find this in verse four, but God. In the Greek, it's de-ho-theos. It means, but the God. It's, it's strong declaration, but the God. There's about 41 different times that you'll find but God in your Bible. And it's, it's, it can be a little different, but many of the times it's exactly like this. It, it's, it's de ho theos, but the God. Being rich in mercy and because of his great love, it's an intervention when you read that in Scripture about 41 times. Something is true, but God intervenes to change the situation. And the true thing can be good or it can be bad. God can change something's good and give you something that's better, or he can take something that's bad and make it good. Other examples found in Scripture in Philippians 2.27, it says, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. But God, maybe two of the most important words in scripture. You and I were on a path to destruction and separation from God. But God, in his timing, intervened through, through Christ Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection to bring an opportunity for you and I to be saved. My desire, because I love you, is to see you all know Christ and to know him today is he? And I'm even praying for that in my mind now, that if you are not sure, as Pastor Bobby said last week, you know that you know that you know that you know, then you need to nail it down today. And it's not based on your performance. This is where a lot of people get in trouble because they think if they do something bad, then they must not be saved. Well, we still deal with the flesh it's ultimately defeated, but the influence of the flesh is still there. For me to stand up in, in, here and say to you, because I'm a pastor and because I'm born again, I never sin, would be a sin. Because that's a lie, you see. So our performance is not what, the, not what God is looking at. It's his son Jesus and the shed blood which covers our sin. 1 John 4.17, I believe it is. I'm thinking right now. If it's not that, read the whole book. It will do you good. First. <laughs> but here's what it says. I think it's 4.17. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, Jesus, so are we in this world. God sees us, if you've trusted Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, he sees us as perfect. Now, he's not foolish. He knows when we've sinned, but he gives us that opportunity. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Don't walk around feeling sorry for yourself because you've sinned. Well, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. That's not in the Bible, y'all. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you need to forgive yourself. You need to receive what God has given you and live, listen, according to what God says is true about you. If he says you're forgiven, walk like it. If he says you're guilty, confess. It's that simple. And the joy of your salvation can be yours as a result of believing God. See, a lot of times I think what we do is we just don't really believe him. God says, you confessed your sin to me and I forgive you. I've cleansed you. And you're like, well, God, you don't really understand how bad that was. Who do you think you are? You know? Receive the, the forgiveness that he grants and walk accordingly. So these words, I think, are among the greatest in the Bible. But God, God could have allowed us to go on in our sin and live an everlasting life with Satan in hell. But instead, he made available to us his great salvation. He gave us life. He quickened us. He raised us from the grave of sin. He took us out of the graveyard. We've got a song about that too. More than that, he made us alive together with Christ. He's, he's given us life. We've been quickened together, raised together. We sit together in the heavenlies. God did this because he is rich in mercy and in great love. Our citizenship, you hear preachers say this because it's true. It's in heaven. We should all be a little uncomfortable here because this is not our home. This is a transition period. When we leave here, either through death or the rapture, we'll be home because we'll be with him throughout eternity. He did this because he is rich in mercy. You know that mercy means that God does not give me what I deserve. That's mercy. Grace is that he gives me what I don't deserve. I deserve hell. All of us deserve hell. We've sinned and we've sinned willfully. But because of Christ and his intervention on our behalf through his shed blood, we have eternal life. It's a wonderful thing, y'all. In verse five, we see that we are made alive together with Christ. Look at it. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He seated us in the heavenlies. You see that in verse six. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. We are seated in heavenly places. There's an old commentary. It was written in the late 1800s by, uh, I can't think of the man's name, but it's called In the Heavenlies. And it's a commentary on the book of Ephesians. It's long since out of print, but it's, it's real. I've got it on my shelf. Actually, it's in my briefcase right now because I used it to study. This positioning has already been sealed. We are inhabits, inhabitants, as I said, of heaven. That is our home. And uh, I'm looking forward to the day when, when we'll transition into his presence. Death is a horrible thing. It reminds us of sin, but it's really, as my great-grandfather said, I've talked about this in my small group quite a bit, as he was dying, look, it's only a step. That's what he said right before he died. It's like almost like heaven is just right here, and it, it's just a step. We can't see it, but it's, I mean, where is this heaven? I don't know. 
So the third point is God's purpose in doing it. Why did he do it? Did he do it because we deserve his graciousness? No, we're not deserving of his grace. Did he do it because we have impressed him in some way? No. I mean, God is the one who said, let there be light, and there was. You got anything good as that? I don't think so. I don't think so. You see, our performance is really futile. How do you impress a God who says, let there be light, and there is, who makes something out of nothing? I mean, even I can take ingredients and try to make a cake, and it's pretty bad. I can't even make something out of something. But God makes something out of nothing. Let there be light, and there is, and it's good. Well, we don't deserve it, and we haven't impressed him, but verse seven gives us the reason. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he shows his grace and his mercy. Through us, Carnes is impacted as a result of this church being here. You are the church. Carnes is impacted. Even last week in the feeding of the 5,000, you know, there's an impact. Is it just the food? No, these folks heard the gospel. Most of them turned away. I don't know how many of them came in as believers. I have no idea. But the ones who were unbelievers, probably most of them left without receiving. Many did, and we were grateful for that. But they all got food, and that's fine. But that's the way God demonstrates his grace and mercy. This is not something that you have to do. You demonstrated grace and mercy by giving of your resources to provide food for a group of people that may have been wanting, you see. And that's the way God, in verse 7, demonstrates this to the world. You say, um, how is all this possible? That's my fourth point. How is all this possible? Well, it's through his favor. We see it in verse eight. For by grace, it's his favor. He decided to demonstrate his favor. You have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not of works. In verse nine, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, this is such a big deal. This is such a very big deal. The idea that you and I look at our lives and evaluate our position with the Lord is really, really dangerous. It's not our performance, y'all. In the counseling ministry, Pastor Todd and I have talked about this. He attends the first service. A lot of people get into trouble with anxiety and fear because they're trying to perform in such a way that they gain the favor of God and others. And the truth of the matter is we're all fallen. We're, go, we're gonna sin. And if you are constantly looking at your own life saying, well, I know I'm not good enough for God or I know blah, blah, blah. You know, we're not good enough for God, but God has made us righteous through Christ Jesus. As the verse I quoted earlier, we, are been, we have been perfected as a result of what Christ did on our behalf. It's not us, you know, being at large and in charge and demonstrating our perfection because we just don't have it, y'all. You already know that. I don't have to tell you that. We all struggle with these things. Just know and understand that God has a plan and purpose for your life. We don't deserve it. We haven't impressed him, but it's through his favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works so that no one should boast. 
And now the fifth point, the result. What is the result? It's found in verse 10. And it's an interesting thing. For we are his workmanship. Poema, poema is the Greek word there. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now that Greek word there, poema, workmanship, is not something you and I can build to be useful. It's something God declares. You are, boom, his workmanship. That means he's got a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. No one is less important to what God's plan is than the other. I'm not more important. You're not more important. God's given us all a call. We are his workmanship because this redeemed being that you and I are, if we've trusted Christ, cannot be created by anyone other than himself. It's not something that you can get really good at and then, you know, demonstrate to the world how wonderful you are. We are his workmanship created, and I love the way the verse reads, in Christ Jesus, we're positioned in Christ Jesus for good works. We don't do good works to get into the family. We are in the family and he's created us to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul here is already starting to prepare the way for those last three chapters. Walk, you see that word walk over and over again in four, five, and six of Ephesians. Walk in him, walk with him, all these kinds of phrases. And that's what our calling is to do, is to walk according to his plan, his purpose, for good works. The good works demonstrate what God has already done. They don't demonstrate how good I am or you are. They demonstrate what God has already done. So the question then becomes today, have you trusted Christ as your savior? Have you really trusted him? A lot of us give lip service to that, but is there really a firmly rooted trust in Lord or in the Lord? Or does every, every time you turn on the news and you see something crazy going on in the world, you go, oh, what are we gonna do? Where does that kind of faith come from? Well, it's given to you by the Lord as a result of faith. You have to really, truly trust in him. You know, it, it, it's, not, it's sort of like, but not really like having surgery because you lay on the table and they put a needle in your arm and they begin to introduce chemicals into your body which cause you to go to sleep. And at that point in time, there's really nothing you can do about it, is there? It doesn't matter how good you are at anything, when that juice goes in the vein, you're going to sleep, you know? And you're putting your faith in that person who's usually standing behind you uh, that you don't know to keep you alive for the next 30 minutes, hour, however long your surgery is gonna be. I had surgery a couple years ago. Um, I had a cancer and praise the Lord, that's been eradicated. Um, but it was interesting. I remember laying on the bed prior to the surgery and they came in and they put an IV in my left arm. And when I woke up in the uh, recovery room, it was in my right arm. <laughs> and I was talking to the doctor about it when I went back from my post-op visit. He said, yeah, 
you really were fortunate because the guy, the anesthesiologist and the nurse, nurse anesthetist, that's hard to say, the nurse anesthetist, was a former combat surgeon who doesn't panic in emergencies. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> Evidently, the vein they were using collapsed, and I was about to wake up in the middle of the surgery. And so the guy was able to change it and get it started in the other arm. You see, but I was trusting that guy to take care of me. I don't know him. I don't know his name to this day. I'd like to thank him, but I never saw him again after that. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like that, but it's not really, because we're talking about God, not some guy who'd been through combat, you know, and was really good at handling emergencies. God's relationship to us is based solely on what Christ did on our behalf. It's not based on your performance or mine. So the question as we conclude today is, have you trusted him? Have you trusted him? Lord, thank you for your word today. And thank you for the way that you've blessed us so richly, Lord, far beyond what we deserve. And Lord, help us to take to heart the reality of the truthfulness of what you proclaimed. It's not about us. It's not about how special we are or how good we are because we're just really not. It is about your grace and your mercy that's extended to us even though we don't deserve it. And Lord, I pray today that the reality of that truth is reality in the life of every person here that every person here has come to faith in you, not in their own performance or their own goodness, but solely in faith in you. And I pray that they would resolve that issue today if they haven't already. And I pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. Matthew's gonna lead us. You know, we've talked about this before. We'll always have counselors down at the front and the pastors will be here if there's a decision that you need to make today. If you wanna just come to the front and pray, that's always an appropriate thing to do here and get right with the Lord. But just whatever the Lord is leading in your heart to do, just obey, y'all. Just be obedient to what God is asking you to do today. And if you're not sure, come and talk to someone about it. Maybe he'll give you clarity through that conversation.